Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you and enjoy. The next topic in our discussion of pain management for older individuals will be looking at non-opioid pharmacologic options. So we're going to spend some time thinking about the classes of analgesics that we have as well as their risks and potential benefits uh, in pain management. But before we begin, I want to talk a little about two recent articles. The first was published in JAMA in 2018, uh, and the title was Effective Opioid Versus Non-Opioid Medications on Pain-Related Function in Patients with Chronic Back Pain or Hip or Knee Osteoarthritis Pain. And this was called the SPACE Randomized Clinical Trial. And as, as we said, it's a RCT that looked at 240 patients. Who, uh, some of whom received opioids and others who received non-opioid medication. And what they found was that there was no significant difference in pain-related function over 12 months. Um, and the, the authors stated that treatment with opioids was not superior to treatment with non-opioid medications for improving pain-related function and that they did not support initiation of opioids for moderate to severe chronic back pain or hip or knee osteoarthritis pain, which may fly in the face of what we were told maybe 10 years ago for people who had significant pain that really wasn't responding well to other modalities, that opioids would have been a rational alternative. And then about a year later, the American College of Rheumatology and Arthritis Foundation published their guideline for the management of OA of hand, hip, and knee. And just briefly, they made some very strong recommendations, of course, for weight loss in overweight or obese patients, especially those with knee or hip OA. Uh, they also strongly recommended self-efficacy and self-management programs. So, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, uh, exercise, and specifically mentioned Tai Chi, also cane use, and bracing as a, a very good option for uh, management of uh, osteoarthritis, hand orthoses, and tibiofemoral bracing for knee osteoarthritis. Finally, they mentioned topical and oral nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, as well as intraarticular glucocorticoid injections for knee osteoarthritis. They did give some conditional recommendations for balance exercises, yoga, CBT, kinesio taping for uh, hand uh, OA, and orthoses for hand joints. Um, also, of course, bracing for patellofemoral knee osteoarthritis, and conditional recommendations for acupuncture, thermal 
remedies radiofrequency ablation for the knee. And again, topicals, intraarticular steroid injections for hand osteoarthritis. So, you know, for knee, topical and oral NSAIDs and intraarticular glucocorticoid injections were preferred uh, as strong recommendations, but conditionally they may even be useful uh, for hand osteoarthritis. Then finally, they talked about topical capsaicin for knee, uh, knee acetaminophen, duloxetine, and finally tramadol. So they really are moving away from the use of opioids at all. And I think this is the first time we're seeing strong recommendations for exercise, for multimodal therapy, and also uh, for topical medications. So when we're thinking about non-opioid pharmacotherapy, we have a big list of options. We have NSAIDs and COX-2 inhibitors. We have acetaminophen, antidepressants, anticonvulsants, and we're really t talking about the alpha-2 delta ligands, or sometimes called the gabapentinoids. Um, adjuvants, which I describe as any medication or modality that supports the use of the med that is causing the analgesia. Um, and then there are some sort of emerging agents like alpha adrenergic or NMDA receptor antagonists. Um, there has been some evidence for short-term use of muscle relaxants, but in general, these are uh, not to be used in olders because of their sedating effects and the risk for falls. But certainly topical analgesics are a, a wonderful new measure in our armamentarium, and they're coming in a lot of different uh, um, formulations now, uh, patches, creams, lotions, etc. But let's stop for a minute and look at the evidence. Um, this, was this is from an evidence-based review uh, compilation in a number of studies around 20, 2009 to through 2011, looking at the different classes of compounds versus their efficacy in low back pain, neuropathic pain, fibromyalgia pain, and osteoarthritis pain. And what we see when we look at this evidence is that acetaminophen and the NSAIDs may in fact be useful for low back pain and osteoarthritis pain, and there is, uh, you know, literature evidence for that. However, uh, acetaminophen and nonsteroidals clearly are not effective for neuropathic pain or fibromyalgia pain. For fibromyalgia and neuropathic pain, on the other hand, the alpha-2 delta ligands are in fact very effective, whereas they would not be effective for low back pain or osteoarthritis pain. Interestingly, the TCAs and the SNRIs are useful for all four of these types of pain, and as are, of course, uh, some opioids, although opioids tend to be um, discouraged in fibromyalgia pain, but tramadol may have some evidence for use in all of these types of pain. Again, low back, neuropathic pain, fibromyalgia, and osteoarthritis pain. And topicals are very useful, at least in terms of the evidence, for 
low back, neuropathic pain, and osteoarthritis pain. Not so much for fibromyalgia pain. When we're talking about topicals, uh, the ones that they looked at specifically were capsaicin and lidocaine. Now, remembering that when we're talking about the senior population, we really have to consider risks versus benefits. And when we're thinking about using a centrally acting agent in an older individual, we really have to use caution because we do not want to cause sedation, falls, or, or tip off delirium. And so the meds that we'd be thinking about there would be the tricyclics, the SNRIs, the anticonvulsants, and then of course, certainly the opioids. But what about adverse events? Well, acetaminophen and nonsteroidals, as everyone knows, were considered step one analgesics on the World Health Organization's step ladder for treatment of pain. And they may be very useful in carefully selected patients. But the problem with acetaminophen is that the FDA advisory committee has now recommended uh, decreasing the maximum daily dose from four grams to around three grams, because as you know, acetaminophen has liver toxicity risk. Nonsteroidals have a lot of problems associated with them, but again, they may be useful in carefully selected patients. When I am worried about using them, it's clearly in patients who have had a cardiovascular or cerebrovascular event because the entire class of nonsteroidals has a black box warning for these types for CVD events. And we really need to use them with extreme caution. Of course, you have to be concerned about the gastrointestinal and renal complications uh, in these patients. So we can't really rely on nonsteroidals, oral nonsteroidals, long-term in high doses for our olders, which is not to say that we cannot use them as topical agents. And I think that this is something that is underutilized. We can use a, a Voltaren gel or diclofenac gel, which is, is very effective for many of our patients. It also comes in a patch. We can use lidocaine gel or lidocaine patches. Uh, we can use uh, aspirin, etc. So these aspirin gel, which would be very effective for our patients. Capsaicin, um, caution needs to be used. It should not be used for hands, on the hands, for uh, OA on the hand, simply because of the risk of rubbing it in the eye. You know that capsaicin is made from hot chili peppers. It can have significant burning and pain on contact if you use too much. You have to caution the, uh, the patient to use no more than a chocolate chip-sized amount of the medication, or you can end up with some significant skin irritation, burning, and certainly you do not want to get it in your eye. So, you know, recognizing that uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs have the black box warning against cardiovascular events, um, and recognizing that aspirin is, you know, an irreversible inhibitor of prostaglandin synthetase, uh, we, we can recognize that these 
medications do have a significant impact on the inflammatory cascade. So they can be useful short term in patients who have good renal function, no history of GI bleed and no cardiovascular issues. And yes, those olders do exist. Again, lowest dose for the shortest period of time possible. But, and I say but, because really, if you look at the Beers criteria, which looks at potentially inappropriate medications for older individuals, um, the recommendation is to avoid long-term use of all of the NSAIDs in seniors. Uh, the one, only one that we might consider using is actually a COX-2 inhibitor, and that's celecoxib. Um, and as you know, many of the other COX-2s are no longer on the market. So with respect to antidepressants, which may be useful in particular for neuropathic pain or fibromyalgia pain, we could use either the SSRIs or the SNRIs. Um, and we know that the serotonin norepinephrinergic reuptake inhibitors are especially useful in neuropathic pain, and they may be useful in mechanical low back pain as well. Uh, and what we're talking about here are duloxetine, venlafaxine, milnasopram, um, or desvenlafaxine. These, these all are potentially useful for older individuals. However, they all have the side effects of drowsiness, sedation, sometimes weight gain. So you think about your, the side effect profile of your patient, and if you are able to tailor the side effect to the intended effect of analgesia, for example, somebody's having difficulty sleeping, maybe the dose of duloxetine being given at night may help with their insomnia. The SSRIs are potentials uh, in geriatric patients. We worry a little bit about the centrally stimulating effect, and we know that the norepinephrinergic activity of the SNRIs may be more beneficial specifically for the neuropathic pain. With respect to the tricyclics, which we know have been used for decades, um, we would really use caution with all of them. Amitriptyline, dizipramine, imipramine, and nortriptyline all have strong recommendations on the beers list to be avoided for use in older individuals. Didn't really talk about the anticonvulsants, but they are, you know, we're talking about gabapentin and pregabalin, which are, we know, very useful uh, for patients with neuropathic pain, painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy, phantom limb pain, central post-stroke pain, uh, et cetera. Very useful products. Again, drowsiness, sedation, be cautious with their use. Topicals are a good option because they're active within the skin. Unlike transdermals, they do not have to be absorbed into the, the uh, cutaneous layers. They do not undergo hepatic metabolism and they do not have systemic absorption. Right within the skin, the soft tissues and the peripheral nerves um, are what are uh, targeted by the topicals. Uh, and, and really they're targeting substance P and other inflammatory cytokine, cytokines. So you, you may find that you have a lack of systemic side effects. There really are very, very few drug-drug interactions with topicals. 
not to be confused again with transdermals. But the mechanism of action of each topical analgesic is really unique to the specific agent. So um, acetosalicylic acid or aspirin is anti-inflammatory. Capsaicin, we know, is also an anti, uh, has uh, anesthetic effects and analgesic effects. And then the local anesthetics, lidocaine, um, and there is an, a eutectic mixture of both lidocaine and prilocaine, which is called EMLA. It's available in a disc and a cream, which can be used. I've already mentioned diclofenac patch uh, gels and lotions. So I think that in terms of multimodal therapy, uh, specifically looking at the type of pain that an older individual has, and then addressing the, the type of medication that you're using specifically to that type of pain uh, makes a lot of sense. And remembering that whatever medication you use, you still should be supporting the patient with all of the other multimodal therapeutics like the physical therapy, the exercise, the cognitive behavioral therapy um, as much as possible. We thank you again for joining PrimeMed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.